Abundance of love, abundance of grace. Now to that cross, you took my place. Oh God, you paid my ransom. My ransom. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church. Loving God, loving people. Now, here's Pastor Scott. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 12, the Apostle Paul is writing and he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I want to preach to you this morning from a sermon titled, I haven't always been like this. And I hope that that is your testimony and if it's not already, I hope that it will be your testimony one day soon. Pray with me. God, thank you for change. Thank you for new birth. Thank you for salvation, God. I thank you for the gospel of Jesus that is able to save those who believe. And Father, today I ask you to anoint me to say the words that you'd have me to say. And I ask you to do your work. Have your will, your way, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul... Uh, God inspired him to write the verses that we just read along with about half of the New Testament. And by any measure, the Apostle Paul was a great man. He was one of those people that uh, God referenced when he said, now God didn't reference him specifically, but the type of person he was talking about is clearly there. God said that he hadn't, hasn't called many mighty many wise or many noble people. The Bible says God has chosen the lesser things of the world. And that's why when I ever see a Christian who's troubled with pride, I wonder, do they even know what the Bible says about us? Do you know that if you ever came to Jesus and found real salvation, it was because you, you cried out to God and said, I, I, I failed God. I can't make it on my own. I'm, I'm undone. I need you. And, and I'm not good enough. On my own. That, that's the basis of understanding how God will come into your life. And God said that He chose the, the lesser people of the world to come to follow Him. That's, that's why some people get rich twisted. See, some people are rich in money, but other people are rich in faith. And, and, and rich in faith is going to get you further in eternity than rich in money can get you. That's a different story for a different time. But Paul, he had it all. He was one of the few rich, wise, noble people. He, he had a great uh, natural upbringing. He was an important person, and God saved him and changed him in a drastic way. And I want to tell you, if you're here and you have been saved, the same thing happened to you. God changed you in a drastic way. Now, everyone doesn't have a testimony of how sorry of a human being they were before they came to Jesus and everyone didn't have as much to clean up as others did man sometimes when I watch these uh hippie rock stars 
that, that are singing Christian music now because the world quit listening to them. Uh, that's a different story for a different time. But they go on and on and on and talk about how they, they used to live this great, fantastic, amazing life, and then they came to God. Um, when you come to God, you don't have to have five rehabs in your testimony. You, you don't have to have 12 murders on your docket and three felonies uh, to, to have a great testimony. I believe, I'm going to say this before I even get into it, I believe the greatest testimony you can have, and it should be the testimony that you want for everyone you care about, is that they came to Christ early, they avoided all of the sin and gutter that the world has to provide for them, and they lived a holy, clean, decent, righteous life all the days of their life from childhood up. That's not my particular story. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story today as we look into the Scripture and see the Apostle Paul's testimony. But whether you came out of a lot or a little, the change is still drastic. Not maybe in what you gave up or the outside change that people saw, but the change in your destination, the change in your eternity, the change in the inside, the change in the peace that comes from having a real relationship with the one true and living God. So Paul, he was an educated person. He was a wealthy person. He, he had a lot going on. Uh, and then he persecuted the church, and then he came to Christ. And we'll look at his testimony a little bit because here's what I want you to get out of today. I want you to learn how to tell your testimony. I want you to learn how to take your testimony and share it with other people. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this. There is power in your testimony. And if you will learn to open your mouth and share your story with people, you will see lives changed and the kingdom of God advancing. So Paul had a lot going on. Uh, God used him to write half the books in the New Testament. He even was inspired by God to tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, to be followers of me as I also am of Christ. That's a pretty bold statement to make. That's a pretty bold statement to make to a group of people to say, if you follow me, live the way I live, you will draw closer to Christ. But that should be the goal that we're all shooting for, that our lives will be so closely following Christ that if others walk where we walk, read what we read, talk how we talk, and live how we live, that they'll be following Christ as well. But in verse 13, he said, I used to be a blasphemer. And in verse 15, he said he was the chief of all sinners. Now, I think he's got some competition for that title. He said, God saved sinners of whom I am chief. And, I, I, you know, that world was different than our world. I think we got some people in this room whose story might make Paul think, well, I ain't as bad as you. <laughs> but the good news is it doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned or, or what you've been through. God is able to save everyone who believes. Can you say amen? amen. So he, he said he used to be a blasphemer. He was the chief among sinners. See, here's what Paul had going on that we need to focus on. He remembered who he used to be. He remembered who he used to be. I tell you, if you ever want to really get inspired, if you ever really need one of those spiritual, encouraging pick-me-ups, get around a brand-new Christian who just got truly saved. 
I'm not talking about a new church member. I'm not talking about somebody who, who uh, just claims Christ, but somebody who just got really born again. They are what we call fired up. They're excited about their faith. When you come to Christ in a real way, and I hope you can remember, for those of you here who have been saved, I hope you can remember when God became real in your life. And, and there was a change, and there was a joy, and it, it was like the, the, the sky was more beautiful, and the ocean was God's handiwork, and the stars were, were magnificent, and you birds singing, and you thank God for the sunshine and the rain, and you just saw God in everything. But then life happened, and, and you kind of settled in to a groove, and the bad thing about that groove is it's more of a rut than a groove. It's more of a stuck spot than it is a moving spot. And maybe you are truly saved here today. And maybe there was a time in your life where you were so thankful that God saved you. See, that's what makes young believers, new believers, new converts so excited. They still remember what life was like before Jesus. And now they're experiencing new life with Jesus. And they know one's better than the other. Have you figured that out yet? And see... Paul never forgot, and he never got over what happened to him the day he got saved. Oh, I wish I, I, wish I had a, a, a got over it, oh, meter. Uh, I just hang it around your neck and, and, and let it gauge you. I start with Vicky, and I work all the way back to Terry. And, and ha, see, see, have you gotten over your salvation? Uh, if, if we had time today just to sit down and talk about it like a Wednesday night Bible study, um, I think if we had enough honesty in the room, there's a lot of people in the room that have not totally forgotten, but don't think about it as much as they used to. Not, not, not totally stop being thankful to God for saving them, but not as excited about it as they used to. Paul never forgot, and he never got over the fact that God saved him. And if you can come to this simple premise, that God saved you when he didn't have to, he loved you when you didn't love him, and he rescued you when you were wrong and he was right, then you will be able to tap into the joy that real salvation brings. He, he tells his story over and over. If you read the Bible, you'll, you'll see in Acts 22, he gives his Damascus Road testimony to Festus the governor. And then in Acts 26, he tells his testimony to King Agrippa. And I'm going to read to you uh, this, this chapter in Acts 26, and I want you to try to focus and stay, pay attention. If your mind drifts off, lock back in. Look at somebody say, lock back in. Because I want you to see the flow of what a testimony sounds like. Because I want you to get such a, a good uh, mindset about your testimony. I want you to get comfortable telling your story. If somebody handed you a microphone right now and said, tell us your testimony, and here I'm going to give you the punchline up front. It, it's being able to say where you were, what happened to you, and how you are. Say where you were, what happened, how you are. Everybody needs a where I was, a what happened, and how I am testimony. And Listen as I read to you out of Acts 26. In verse 1, the Bible said, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You may speak in your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. Paul had been locked up again. He had been arrested again. The Jewish leaders were mad at Paul because he was preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. 
and they didn't like that, so they were constantly looking for ways to get him incarcerated. And now he's standing um, at the highest seat in front of the king, and he's defending himself. I don't recommend that unless you're the Apostle Paul. Get a good lawyer. But Paul had the education to get it done, and God was on his side. In verse 2, he said, I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. Paul knew it. Paul knew some things about this king, this heathen king, this non-God-following king. He knew some things about the man, and he believed that God was working on him. I hope one day you get to the place where you're around an unbeliever, and you just kind of get that feeling. God just lets you know that he's working on that person, that, that other people, even like the Bible said, uh, some, some plant seeds and some come along and water it. That means somebody told you something about God early in your life, and then somebody else came along. So one person plants, another person waters, but God gives the increase. And if you ever get in that place where you know that, that God is dealing with somebody, you'll see what Paul was going through right here. He said, I'm fortunate that you're the one hearing me. In verse 3, he said, For I know that you're an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently with an exclamation point. I want to tell you one thing about a testimony is there's power in it because God superinfuses it. The Bible says that you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. When you are witnessing for God, he empowers you to say the right thing and he puts power in your testimony. To say that to the king was a bold statement, but Paul was operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 4 he said, as the Jewish leaders are well aware... See, they're in the crowd listening, so he's taking some jabs at them right now. It, 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 it's like when, when, the, when the defense attorney is, is talking to the jury, and then he says, as the prosecutor has said, and he turns around and he looks at the other lawyer. He said, as the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. See, get this picture. The people that keep getting Paul arrested grew up the same way he grew up, being taught the same way he was taught. But guess what? He was head of the class. He got a better training than they got. And he, he's, he's, taking, he's taking a little shot at them right here when he says, as they're well aware. And in verse 5, he said, if they would admit it, I just know he's looking at them right then, if they would admit it. <laughs> if they would admit it, where'd he go? They, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Now, the Pharisees were a group of religious people who lived very strict. They believed that you had to dot every I and cross every T for God to be pleased with you. And they were very extreme, but they had self-righteousness, not God's righteousness. And we'll talk about that some other time. But they lived close. I remember one time as a young Christian reading in the Bible that the Scripture says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I thought, I don't live as good as they lived. 
But, but then, then I read another scripture that says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's a difference in having your own righteousness and having the righteousness that comes by faith. In verse 6, he said, Now I am on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. That's resurrection. And verse 7, in fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope I have, yet, your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. They were teaching in their classes that God was going to save them, raise them up from the dead, and give them heaven. Now, Paul's teaching the same thing, but they were mad because he said that Jesus rose from the dead. So they were haters, and there's always been haters. Listen in verse 8. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Let me ask you this. Let's put a pin in that real quick. Does it seem incredible to you that God can raise the dead? Does it seem hard to you to believe that God can raise the dead? Do you really believe deep down in your inner person that one day God is going to raise up your body and put you in heaven? Oh, that's the, that's the good news today. And they, they, Paul said, it shouldn't sound incredible to you that God can raise the dead because they all taught that. In verse 9, he said, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. If you know Paul's story, Paul was the head hater of Jesus. He didn't like these new Christians coming along telling, telling them that they needed more than Moses. That offended his sense of... Of religiosity that offended his sense of pride and arrogance and he began to persecute the people who followed Jesus he, he said in verse 10 indeed I did just that authorized by the leading priest I caused many believers there to be sent to prison and I cast my vote against them as they were condemned to death get the picture of who Paul is before Jesus he is a Pharisee he is a Jewish important person and he's working for the Roman government going around finding out who has left Judaism to follow Jesus and he's having them arrested sent to prison and murdered what's their crime following Jesus what's he doing now he's following Jesus he was persecuting the very faith that he came to embrace in verse 11 he said many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Now, I don't know what you've done against the Lord's church. I don't know. Um, when, when I was lost, I had a car. It, it was a jacked up, hot rod, mu muscle car. Had big old 50 wide tires on the back and air shocks on it. And I carried two five-gallon cans of gas in, uh, two five-gallon cans in my trunk and a siphoning hose. Anybody remember when you could siphon gas out of a tank? I never bought gas as an unsaved man, rarely. I would go out at night and siphon gas from other people's car in those two five-gallon cans. Now, I went so far one night, me and a buddy of mine, we, we, we took from, we went to a church parking lot and there were people parked on the far side of the building, and we took gas from them. Now, that's about as low as a human being could be. But I didn't chase down Christians into, into other cities 
and, and have them killed. I'm telling you, God can save anybody. Do you believe that yet? Listen to verse 12. One day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priest. Here's Paul. He's going about his business. His business was to persecute followers of Jesus Christ. His business was to work for the enemies of Christ to have people put in prison and killed. In uh, verse 13, he said, About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. He's not there by himself. He's going about his business, and something happens. And I want to tell you something. When you get saved, something happens. And it's, it's, it's worth taking note of, and it's something to remember. Verse 14 says, we all fell down, comma. Learn how to pay attention to the punctuation when you study the Scripture. Pause on commas. Stop on sentences. He said we all fell down. That's important. How many of them fell down? So they all saw the light, and they all fall down. Then the Scripture says, and I heard a voice. They didn't all hear a voice. Paul heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. If you're here today and you know you're not saved, and, and you're just here just to get through this church service, I want this one phrase to get in your head. If you're not where you need to be for Christ right now, if you're not following Christ the way you should, I want this one sentence to get stuck in your head. Hear me good. It is useless for you to fight against God's will. It is useless, sir, ma'am, young person. If you say, I've had people tell me, oh, pray for my son, pray for my daughter, pray for my cousin. They're running from the Lord. Can I tell you this? You can't outrun God because he's already where you're running to. He's everywhere. And, and, and here's Jesus talking to Saul. Uh, Saul and Paul, it's not that God changed his name. A lot of people believe that God changed Paul's name, Saul's name to Paul when he got saved, like he changed Abram's name to Abraham. But that's not true. Saul, they, sometimes they call him Saul, sometimes they call him Paul. Saul was the Hebrew way of pronouncing it. And Paul was the Gentile way of pronouncing it. So when Paul was preaching to Gentiles, they called him Paul. That's like, uh, how many people in the room uh, can, would consider themselves bilingual? How many people speak more language, more than one language? Okay, so uh, if, if Nixa is walking in the room, and uh, because I only know uh, 42 Hispanic words, I, 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 will, I will say my first word. I, I don't say when I see... Deacon Dixon, I never have greeted Deacon Dixon with hola. But if I see Nixon in the room, I yell at her from across the room, hola, como esta? And if you are, if you're bilingual, you know sometimes people will say your name, your, 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 uh, your first language one way, and your English language, your name a different way. Are you following me? Um, now, you, now, Jessica claims they don't say Jessica. They should. <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of thing that Saul and Paul had going on. Are you following me? Let's stay, let's stay locked in. Jesus calls him by his, by his government name. He says, Saul, see, Saul is his government name, but when he left his Jewish roots and started preaching to Gentiles, they called him Paul. And when you, he said, why are you persecuting me? This is useless, man. And I want to tell you, if you're running from God, 
It's useless. He, he's going to get you. And I, I, I want to encourage you. If you know you're not where you need to be already, go ahead and get there today and stop all this foolishness. Stop all this useless waste of life. Whether you're saved or lost, if you're here and you're not saved, go ahead and get saved today. Uh, but even if you're here and you're saved and you're not doing what you know God wants you to do, stop that today because you may as well get on with the getting on because God's going to get you either way. Listen to what Paul said in verse 15. He said, who are you, comma? Then he questioned, Lord, he, 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 he feels it, who this is, and, and he said, who are you, Lord? I asked, and the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, get to your feet, for I've appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. You are to tell the world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. If you ever wondered what God wants you to do with your life, if you ever wondered what you were on this earth for, if you ever wondered what, what you should be spending your time and your energy on, let me just break it down for you real quick. You need to have a real meeting with God. You need to be saved for real. And then you need to let God use you to tell the world what you've seen and what he's going to show you in the future. I wonder if you're telling anybody about God lately. In verse 17, he said, Jesus is talking. He said, and I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. That had to be the biggest gut punch Paul had ever took. Because a lot of people unwisely believe that slavery started in America. Slavery has been around since the beginning of time. A lot of people unwisely believe that America is the most racist nation on the planet. Uh, and, and you just don't know much about Middle East uh, uh, history at, at that point. But racism was so bad in, in this day and time, Jewish people wouldn't even walk on the same side of the street. Now, you know, I still cross the street sometimes. Hey, hey if, I, if you walk in a big old giant pit bull and he's slobbing at the mouth, I'm across the street. But, but the, there was such a separation between Jews and Gentiles. And, and, and Paul said, I'm going to send you to minister to the Gentiles. And Paul had spent his whole life perfecting his life as a Jew. And they hated the Gentiles, and the Gentiles hated them. How, how many of y'all know God can change a person all the way to their inside? In, in verse 18, he said, I'm going to send you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness and to the light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God. Pay attention to that, that right there uh, in the middle toward the bottom. All must repent of their sins and turn to God. Let, let, me, let me tell you from the youngest to the oldest in the room today, all of us must repent of our sins and turn to to God. If that's happened to you, you need to learn how to put it in words and share it with other people. That's what your testimony is all about. They must turn from their sins and turn to God, repent of their sins and turn to God and prove that they have changed by the good things they do. I meet so many people who uh, I talk to about their faith and they tell me, oh, I'm saved. 
And I ask, well, what makes you think that? And sometimes they get offended, but I don't care. I'm more concerned with their eternal destiny. Well, what makes you think that? And they, they'll, they'll say, well, you, you don't think I'm a good person? Well, automatically now I know they're not saved because they've equated uh, eternal resting place with good works. And the Christian religion doesn't believe that. The Christian faith believes that you can't get to heaven by any other way than the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ. But the Bible says that you prove that you've changed by the good things that they do. I can't tell you how many counseling sessions that I've given to people sitting in my office and they've told me about all the horrors of how they're living. And, and I'll just look at them and say, well, have you ever thought about truly getting saved? Oh, pastor, I'm saved. You know I'm saved. No, sir, ma'am, I don't. You just told me about all these addictions you have. You just told me about how horrible you live. You never read the Bible. You never pray. You don't serve. You, you, you don't outwardly show any sign that you love God. Let, let me ask you this today. Are you proving that you have changed by the good things you do? Now, you can't get to heaven by doing good things, but I'm going to tell you this. If you're truly saved, there's going to be some goodness in you somewhere. That's just the way it goes. In verse 21, he said, Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time so I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what Moses and the prophets said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, and this, in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. That is the message that the Pharisees had been preaching. That's the message that Paul's preaching. What's the problem? They didn't embrace Jesus. They didn't embrace Jesus. They, they knew that the Messiah would come and would uh, rise from the dead. They just didn't believe it's Jesus. I hope you believe that your Savior is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I hope that you believe that the only true and living God is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said of himself, I am the way. And the, not a way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except by me. You can't get to heaven any other way than Jesus. You can't get to heaven by being a good person. You can't get to heaven by coming to church. You can't get to heaven by being better than you used to be. You have got to believe that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, God's only begotten son in verse 24 he said suddenly festus shouted now remember he's already told his testimony to festus uh before back in acts 22 festus has heard this story festus is like some of y'all sitting in church thinking when's it gonna be over oh here he goes again damascus road go ahead i've heard but festus sitting there thinking i could tell this story for him save a lot of time he said paul you're insane too much study has made you crazy. Now, here's the funny thing, and I don't have time to preach all this because I'm, I'm going somewhere, but there's so much depth in this chapter, so much that, that God is saying here. He said too much study has made you crazy. Even though he hated Paul, he knew Paul was smarter than him. Even though he hated Paul, he knew Paul knew more about what he was talking about than he knew. You ever had a discussion with somebody and, and you're just telling the facts and they get in their feelings? You ever had a discussion with somebody and you're just telling the, the stone cold truth and when they can't 
refute your truth. They just go to name calling, haterism. I don't care what you say. All y'all stink anyhow. They don't love nobody. And they just go into feelings. There's Festus. Stop being that dude. Some of y'all are that dude. Stop being that dude. He goes to name calling, personal attacking. He he go he he just he knows Paul is right. And and listen to what he also knows. He sees his king, Agrippa, who's in charge of this meeting, listening to Paul's defense in this courtroom, and he sees that the king is listening. And he's like, this nut job king over here going to let this, 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 this traitor. See, because to, to the Jews, Paul was a traitor. To the Romans, Paul was a traitor. He was working for them, arresting people following Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, he's gone to the other team. And if you truly get saved, your family is going to think you're crazy. At some point, they're going to tell you nobody goes to church that much. It don't take all that. And if you're truly saved, you understand it takes all that and some. In verse 25, the Bible says, But Paul replied, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. I think he smirked when he said it. Maybe that's just me. He probably didn't smirk. He's a better man than I am. I'd have smirked. I'd have been like, oh, most excellent Festus. Would you stink, so? He said, I'm not insane. What I am saying is the sober truth. Now, I got an active imagination. I don't speak for the Bible when the Bible doesn't speak for itself. But sometimes I, I, I just let my mind wander. Um, it's it's kind of like, how many of y'all know the story about Jesus came and the, the woman, they, they were all going to stone this woman. Uh, and, 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 and the Bible says Jesus knelt down and he began to draw in the dirt. Now, if you ever heard somebody preach that message, they, 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 they think in their mind Jesus just started writing down their sins. I don't know if you've ever heard a preacher go there. Uh, and maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Uh, but I, I, I kind of think along that same line right now. He's saying, what I'm saying is the sober truth. I think Festus might have been taking a little nip in the courtroom. I think Festus might have had a little drinking problem. He goes to attacking Paul. Paul keeps his composure. Listen, when, when they start attacking you for righteousness sake, keep your composure. But you can work a few words in there every now and then if you have to. In verse 26, he said, and King Agrippa knows about these things. Paul sees there's a connection going on. Paul sees Agrippa has an understanding of what God is doing. And he said, I speak boldly, for I'm sure these events are not, sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. See, Festus is a drunk who's not paying attention to his own world. King Agrippa is a scholar who knows about other religions, and he knows what the Jews believe, and he knows what they're saying because they did it openly. In verse 27, King Agrippa, he asked, Do you believe the prophets? And before he even lets him answer, he said, I know you do. I've been at times in my life counseling people, sharing Christ with people, and they're struggling. And, and it's like um, people don't want to admit that they're lost. 
I've said for years, it's not hard to get somebody saved. It's hard to get them to admit that they're lost. And there's some of you in this room, you're just as lost as a golf ball in high weeds, but you don't want to admit it. You want to hold on to your pride. You want to pretend that you are saved just like everybody else. And, uh, but, but most of the people around you aren't saved. And you might be fooling others around you, but you can't fool God. And I've been in situations like that before where I've seen people and I'm just like, I know you want to, I know you want to believe in Jesus. I know you do. And, and Paul is feeling that in his spirit right now. And, and King Agrippa is, is, is listening intently. But then that pride got him. Then that haterism got him. Then that I'm the king and you're not got him. You can't tell me what to do. This is my court. And he said in verse 28, Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? He didn't say he wasn't going to become a Christian. Do you get that? Don't ever think when you're sharing God's love with people, don't ever think when you're sharing your testimony that they're not listening because the Bible says of itself, God said that his word will not return unto him void, but it will accomplish that thing which he sets it forth to do. And he sets it forth to do to seek and to save that which is lost. And Paul's been telling the truth of the gospel to Agrippa, and it's working on Agrippa. And I want to tell you something. It may seem like your message is not working on the people in your family. It may seem like your message is not working on the people in your circle, in your job, in your community, but I want to tell you something. The word always works. And Agrippa, he, 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 he tried to swell up, but he was under so much conviction of the Spirit. He didn't say he wouldn't become a Christian. He said, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Oh, he's right there. He's right there, and some of y'all are right there with him. You're just trying to hold on. Hold on to what? Eternal punishment in hell? Hold on to what? Your addiction? Hold on to what? The inner pain that you have? In verse 29, Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. He's saying, I don't care if you do it fast or slow, king. I just want you and everybody else to be like me. Not to be a Jewish scholar, not to be a former Pharisee, not to be a uh, traveling uh, apostle, but to be saved. He wanted King Agrippa to be saved. And, and I tell you for sure, it's my prayer this morning that all who hear me this day would become the same as me. I, not, not, not my faults, not my frailties, but the fact that I know for sure that I love the Lord. I know for sure he saved me. I know that he changed me. I know that I'm born again. I never struggle ever with am I really saved. Some of y'all have so many doubts about whether or not you're really saved. You're just constantly battling these doubts, battling these doubts. I've talked to people for years in preaching this gospel and heard people tell me, Pastor, the devil just keeps me tied up in doubt. I, I want to be confident in my salvation, but sometimes I just have these concerns. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's a fear that I have. What, what if I'm truly not saved? Uh, do you know you truly have a thumb? Did you ever doubt if that was your thumb? No, because you don't doubt what's real to you. God, the devil is not tying you up with doubt. The devil does not cause people to doubt their salvation. I want you to hear this good today. Listen to me. If you have doubts about your salvation, I can promise you that is not the devil 
causing you to doubt your salvation. The devil would not cause you to doubt your salvation because people that have doubts start to examine. And he doesn't want an unsaved person examining whether or not they're truly saved. He don't even want a saved person examining, trying to draw closer to God. It's not the devil making you wonder, are you truly born again? It's the grace and the mercy and the long-suffering of God who will continue to pursue you and pursue you and pursue you. And if you're one of those doubters, you need to get over it. I can tell you for sure, I do not doubt that I'm saved. Now, I, I, I doubt that, that God is always uh, excited about my choices. I've made some bad choices in my life before Christ and since Christ. And, and I've let God down many times before Christ and since Christ. But I can tell you, I've never in any of that time ever doubted that I was truly saved, no more than I doubt if this is my thumb or your thumb. I know whose thumb this is because it's mine, and I'm sure of it because it's personal to me. So, so I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my testimony now in the remaining time that we have because this past Thursday just a couple of days ago I celebrated what we call a spiritual birthday and everybody in this room needs two birthdays because we were all born and we all need to be born again Jesus said unless you're born again you cannot enter into heaven so I was born on August 6 1963 I'll be 58 in a couple of weeks and I was born again on July 15th 1981 which means this past Thursday, I celebrated my 40th spiritual birthday. Somebody ought to give God praise for saving people from the west side of Jacksonville. And, and, and I hope that you have a spiritual birthday because if you don't, then you're not where you need to be. You must be born again. Now, this week... For 25 years was the biggest emotional, exciting day of my year. On my birthday, um, we don't we don't do we don't as a family we don't really do anything for my birthday. We go out to eat, but we do that every night anyway because we don't keep food in the house. Because uh, we like to spend time together, sitting down eating together. And so we just, you know, we just go about our normal day. Uh, I work on my birthday. Dina works on her birthday. Um, you know, it's just, not, it's just not in my family. It's not a huge thing to me. I'm like, yeah, I'm celebrating these wrinkles and this gray hair and getting older. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, it just never has been that big of a deal to me. But July 15th has always been a huge deal to me because it's the day that changed my life. My spiritual birthday for 25 years was the most exciting day of the year. I look forward to it. I always had, if, if not even externally, internally, a great time of excitement and uh, closeness to God on July 15th. For 25 years, spiritual birthday, greatest, greatest week of my life. Spiritual birthday, greatest week of my life. Best thing that ever happened to me. And then 15 years ago, that week got changed because on, on July 15th, 15 years ago, I celebrated my 25th spiritual birthday. But on July 16th, I held my wife as she died in my arms. And so 
that I preached a sermon one time called What a Difference a Day Can Make. And I went from such exuberant celebrations to having my 25th spiritual birthday to, to the lowest point of my life. So my first 25 years of celebrating my spiritual birthday have, have always been the greatest week of the year. And, and, and now it's kind of a, a different deal because uh, th this week I celebrated on Thursday. It was the 40th anniversary of my salvation. And on Friday was the 15-year anniversary of the passing of my wife. But I want to tell you a little bit about how this all came to be because in 1 Peter 3.15, listen to this verse because this, this is a verse that you need to get in your mind. This is a verse that you need to live out. The Bible says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What is that saying, preacher? It's saying you ought to be excited about God and ready to tell everybody why you are. When, when somebody asks you, why do you go to church all the time? You, now, now, see, here's the thing. Because churches in our lifetime have become places of competition. We don't play this game. And you can tell we don't play this game. Churches have become places of competition. They, they, they've put all their money into their buildings, all their money into their carpet, their marble tiles, their beautiful cathedrals. They put all, all of their money into their programs. They take their youth to Disney World. They go on skiing trips. They, they do all these. That, that was never the case before. People just went to church uh, because they loved the Lord. And that was the church God led them to. And, and that's the only reason. Listen, I promise you this. Nobody's coming to Abundant Life because they love the parking lot. No, nobody's coming to Abundant Life because of all the money we spend on different internal ministries. I'm going to let you know right now, we spend almost every penny of our money on external ministries. We, listen, you take your kids to Disney World and on skiing trips. You take your kids to the jump zone. Uh, well, I, I wish our church would take the kids uh, roller skating. You take your kids roller skating. We're going to give them the word of God. We're going to send money all around the world to the Philippines, to Africa, to Ecuador, to Belgium, to India, to Belize, to Nicaragua, to Romania, to Belgium, and places all around the world we send money to every month so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can come forth. And when people ask you, why, why do you go to church so much? You shouldn't tell them because the parking lot's so pretty. Or because the preacher preaches short, nice, encouraging messages and we always get out before the Methodists. No, you, you should have a reason why you can tell people what's the answer for the hope that is in you. I'm going to tell you again, there's power in your testimony. When people won't listen to the preacher, they'll listen to your testimony. When people won't pick up the Bible and read it, they'll listen to your testimony. God has positioned Christians in the midst of non-Christians. God has positioned you, if you're saved, to be around some people that need to hear your story. And your story ought to be a story about what God did in your life. So I'll give you mine real quick. I grew up in church. My mama took me to church uh, from the first week I was born. Uh, they put that little white robe gown dress on me. Uh, they use the same one for boys and girls. It's shameful. But I was Catholic, Roman Catholic, and they put their little white dress on me, and the priest 
uh, splash water in my face. They, they gave me a St. Christopher medallion uh, and told me I was Catholic. And so we grew up in the Catholic church uh, when I was little. And then my parents got divorced in the 60s. And in the 60s, divorce was not common. And it was not accepted by the church, uh, especially the Roman Catholic church. Back then, they didn't care who left who, who cheated on who. The Bible does. The Bible makes note of that. The Bible says that uh, if your spouse leaves you, you're free to get a divorce. Uh, you're free to remarry. The Bible says if your spouse commits adultery on you, you're free to get a divorce. You're free to remarry. Uh, but the Catholic Church, they didn't care about that back then. They kicked everybody out. You got a divorce in the Catholic Church in the 60s, the man, he can't come back. The woman can't come back. They're like, well, y'all got to get out. We can't, we can't have people in here thinking divorce is okay. We can't have people in the Catholic Church like that. So <clears throat> they, kicked, they kicked my dad out. Uh, he, he went on to, to no church. Uh, later in life became a Mormon. Uh, my, my mom and me and Dina, we, we moved back uh, to England, and we, we came to be Baptists eventually because that's what everybody in the South does at some point. Let me, let me just see. How many people in the room were ever Roman Catholic? Just a handful of us. How many people in the room ever been to a Baptist church? Okay, all a bunch of Southern people. I like it. So, I rode the bus. I, 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 was, I was sent to church, though. And I, I want to tell you, especially parents here, if you're a parent here and you have children here with you today, I, I want to commend you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for bringing your children to church. I was sent to church. I, I, I was pushed out of the house to go to church so, so Mama could sleep in longer. So, so Mama could have, you know, the kids out of her hair. Uh, but I'm thankful for that time in my life. See, I was born, people ask me all the time, everywhere I go, people want to know where I'm from. And it's not because they're concerned with my geography, they're concerned with my accent. And it throws them off when they hear how southern my accent is, and so I can mess with them any kind of way I want to, because if someone asks me where I'm from, well, I'm from San Diego, California. Can't you hear it? That's, that's, my, that's my SoCal. I'm from, I'm from a Southern California as you can be. Uh, but I didn't live there long. I lived in Louisiana when I was little before school started. And then we moved to England. And I went to kindergarten, first and second grade in England. So somebody's like, where did you get that accent from? I tell them, well, you know, I went to elementary school in England. So it's probably the British you hear coming out in my voice. When obviously it's not. But then my parents got divorced. My dad stayed over there. Me, Mom, and Dina we came back to live in Virginia, had to live with some relatives for a while, uh, had, had to try to, you know, my mom had to piece her life back together as an adult, a parent of two. She did what so many ladies in our own church have done. She went to nursing school, put herself through nursing school, and became a nurse. Um, and we lived in Virginia for a couple of years, and I rode the church with my sister, who's here, to Grace Brethren Baptist, uh, Grace Brethren Church. They weren't a Baptist church, they were a Brethren Church. And I'm still not sure what that is because I never spent a lot of time looking into it. But I enjoyed going to church as a little kid. Um, I, it, it was fun. We always had fun things to do. And I enjoyed going. And when I was in the third grade, is the first year coming back to America after kindergarten, first, second grade in England. Came back to America, going to this little church, uh, Grace Brethren Church. 
And in the third grade was the first time I can remember walking the aisle to get saved. And I use air quotes because I didn't get saved, but I did walk the aisle. And it was typical church service, and the preacher preached and told, you know, told everybody, if you don't want to die and go to hell, you ought to come down here right now and give your heart to Jesus. Well, I don't want to go to hell. I mean, I ain't stupid. I just look this way. I, I, I knew that much. And so I got up. I walked down the aisle. And the real reason I did it, uh, because my sister had done it the, the week before. And I thought, well, hold on. I'm going to hell and she ain't? That ain't no good. So I walked down the aisle. And they did the typical little thing. The pastor said, pray this prayer with me, boy. As I prayed to prayer with him. And he put his hands on my shoulder and he turned around. He said, this is little Scotty Becker. Nobody in life had ever called me Scotty Becker before in my whole life, even, even to this day. Two people in my life ever called me Scotty. Uh, the, uh, the pastor at Grace Brethren Church when I was in the third grade and Bishop Vaughn McLaughlin. And he said, this is little Scotty Becker. He comes today accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. If you rejoice in his decision, uh, let, let it be known by clapping. And everybody clapped for me and I thought, I'm in the club. I'm doing good. And so then he said, you need to get baptized. So I got baptized, and I was still unsaved. And walking an aisle didn't save me. And getting baptized didn't save me. And I struggled with that for a long time. And I wondered, why do so many people walk the aisle, pray a prayer, and don't get true salvation? Why do so many people walk, walk an aisle, pray? We, we've had people in this church, my own children, have prayed to receive Christ 3,911 times. Not that much. But why do so many people walk in our prayer prayer, think that they're going to get saved, and they don't? Why does it work for some and it doesn't work for others? And I'll tell you the reason why. Because God said to Jeremiah, you'll only find me when you search for me with your whole heart. And I wasn't, I wasn't in a place in my life where I understood the gospel. I wasn't responding to the gospel the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I was responding to, I don't want to go to hell. And many of you tried to make decisions for God based on fire insurance. You just didn't want to go to hell. You weren't really looking for a true relationship, a life-changing relationship with God. You didn't want to give up everything you were to be all that he is. But so that's what I did. I walked out, prayed a prayer, told the preacher I want to go to heaven, and that's when they gave me this little Bible. And I kept this Bible. Um, as a keepsake uh, since then. And when we left three years later to leave Virginia to come to Florida, uh, I, I brought this Bible with me. And my mom got remarried to, to a tyrant um, who made sure that me and Dina were always involved in chores. And every Saturday, we had to dust the entire house. We had to vacuum uh, the entire house, had to clean both bathrooms. How many of y'all remember houses that only had two bathrooms? Man, the houses they got now, people got more bathrooms, they got people living there. But we, we were always doing chores. Our house was always immaculate. And this Bible got picked up every Saturday because we had to, we didn't just get to dust like, like people dust today. We had to take everything off the shelf, dust the shelf, dust the everything, and put the everything back on the shelf. That, that's old school. And this Bible became just something I would pick up, dust. It sat on my, on my bed stand 
next to my bed, my end table next to my bed. Um, and that is uh, where that Bible stayed, and it just became a part of my furniture. They gave it to me. We left. We came here in 1975 when I was 11 years old. We moved to Jacksonville, and I started riding the church bus to a little Baptist church on Normandy Boulevard called West Normandy Baptist Church. It's next to the Green Acres Sporting Goods Store. Um, and that is where I met, as an 11-year-old, a 5-year-old Gail. And her mama taught me that summer, and I still have the uh, Vacation Bible School certificate from the summer of 1975 when we first came here. I was 11 years old. Uh, I still have my Vacation Bible School certificate signed by her mother. And that was, uh, I thank God for West Normandy Baptist Church because it's where I met my wife. Um, and me and my sister, we got really involved in the youth group. Of course, Dina was always the leader of everything. When we were young, everybody followed Dina. She was the president of her class. She was always in student government. She was always a uh, head cheerleader. And then she got into a uh, marching band with twirling flags, was the flag corps captain. She was always a uh, honor society. And she was my big sister. And uh, she did beauty pageants and tap dancing and ballet and horse riding where they jumped over. Like, I don't know why they call those things gates. They're bars, poles. And she'd do all that. And I was just a little kid following along saying, man, my sister can do anything. And I just keep getting in trouble. I didn't do no kind of dancing and balleting. And uh, my, my, my horse riding was more falling than riding. And, you know, they kept me over in this corral where they put me on a small horse so when I fell off it, I didn't kill myself. And Dina was out there riding with the adults, jumping over barrels and stuff. Um, but we started going to this church. Dina became the head of the youth group, and, you know, I was her brother, so I, I had that going for me. Um, and that year, we went to youth camp, and the pastor there challenged everybody to carry their Bible to school every day the, ne the next coming year. And I wasn't saved, but I ain't one to challenge I mean, some, some of y'all, it's a mental disease. It's a, it's a weakness. Some of y'all, if they say, I dare you, oh, don't dare me. I know you're not daring me. Are you daring me? Because if you're daring me, like that's something really, you got to do it now because they dared you. And he dared us to carry our Bible to school every day. So I'm like, I'm ready with it. Tell me I won't do it. I will do it. And I carried this Bible to school at James back, back then. They used to have seventh grade centers in Jacksonville. And they bust me from the west side of Jacksonville in Country Creek off Normandy Boulevard to the James Weldon Johnson seventh grade center off Kings Road. And I didn't carry this Bible and put it in a locker. I carried this Bible on top of my books. And I let everybody know that's my Bible. And I'm carrying it because my preacher said, you got to carry a Bible. Where's yours? I've just always been militant. So, I mean, well, I didn't love the Bible. I didn't love God. I wasn't even truly saved. But I was militant, and I, I you know, he dared me, so I'm in. Some of y'all don't really love God. You're not all about God. You've just become your habit to do the, the churchy things that you do. So all every day, seventh grade, man, I'm carrying my Bible. We're going to church every time the doors are open. I wasn't going to church because I love God. I was going to church because we got to ride the bus, and they gave us candy on the bus. I'm like, bed it up. I'm 
My mama don't keep no candy in this house. Ride that church bus, get me some candy. And we played games. I'm like, oh, man. But it, none of that, see, none of that game playing and candy got me to Christ, though. That's a different message for a different time. But so seventh grade, I got involved. We were going to church Sunday morning because we got to ride the bus and get candy. We were going back Sunday night because back then, uh, you know, the, the certain little group of people at that church that were uh, hanging around Gail's mom and dad, they would all go to the Dairy Queen on Sunday night after church. You remember that? I don't know if you, you remember that. We'd go to the Dairy Queen every Sunday night after church. And because, you know, we were little throwaway kids. We didn't have any parents in church with us. Um, they, they, they would always just buy us some ice cream. And I'm like, you better bet I'm coming. You buying, I'm coming. Uh, and so Wednesday night, we're there every Wednesday night, not because I love God, not because I was saved, but because we had this little thing called RAs, Royal Ambassadors for Christ. And it was a boys' club, and we got, we got to throw the football and play outside while everybody else went into church, and it, it just gave us something to do. But so that was every day of seventh grade. Then eighth grade, uh, they ended Crosstown busing, and I got to go to school close to where I live, and I went to, back then, it was junior high school, not middle school, and it was uh, eighth and ninth grade. I went to Joseph Stilwell Junior High School for eighth and ninth grade, and eighth grade, I'm like, they ain't gonna stop me from carrying my Bible. All these people going to hell. And I knew they were going to hell. I just didn't know I was going to hell with them. And so I'm carrying my Bible to school in eighth grade, and People are laughing at me, and I'm like, whatever. I'm worrying about you. You don't know what I know. And everybody, this, that's when, I don't know when it is for your kids, but that's when temptation uh, was big in, in that generation. It seemed like normal kids that were going to seventh grade back then were kids, but by, by the eighth grade, uh, they were all hellions. And people started asking me to, to go out because I was playing sports, and after, after practice, they'd like, Let, let's go behind the dugout uh, and, and let's smoke. And we, whether it was cigarettes or weed, I'd tell them, I'm a Christian, I don't do that kind of stuff. It's crazy. Tempt me like that. And I just bowled up on them and told them, I'm not going to do it. And I wasn't a Christian, but in my mind, I had enough church in me to know that ain't right. And so I told them, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. And so I'm in eighth grade. Dina's there in ninth grade. She, she's the head cheerleader on the cheerleading squad, and so I had that going for me. I, I was related to the head cheerleader, and so I've always followed my sister. She's always been a guiding light for me, and um, so that was good. Well, in ninth grade, she goes off to, I mean, in tenth grade, she goes off to Ed White High School. So I go into the ninth grade by myself. We're not riding the bus together anymore. She's going her way. I'm going my way, and I'm going ninth grade. Joseph Stillwell Junior High School, and I'm carrying my Bible to school. Man, I'm seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. I'm just, I'm re just representing church. I wasn't representing salvation. I was representing church, religion, and strong-willed discipline militancy. And so I'm going about my business. Well, temptation came in its biggest way for Dina when she got to Ed White. And she went to Ed White in 10th grade, left me alone, uh, be by myself in junior high school. And she got involved with some people that led her into some things that spiraled down to me. We were walking around one day. We were in the neighborhood, and Country Creek was brand new. We got one of the first houses in Country Creek. I remember where the famous Amos is on Normandy Boulevard right now. 
That's, that's Country Creek and Normandy, Country Creek Boulevard, Normandy Boulevard on that corner. That was our bus stop, and there was a billboard there that said, Country Creek, custom homes built by Richard Dosty, starting at $24,999. And my mom bought a house, a brand-new custom-built house in Country Creek for $26,000. You can't do that these days. Uh, but the neighborhood was growing, and there were new houses going, and we were walking around looking at these new houses, and we were sitting down talking, doing something, and my sister, my hero, the, the one who, who lied for me, kept me out of trouble, um, comforted me when my stepfather would beat me, cooked for me when nobody was home, um, everything I know how to cook, well, not everything, but most things I knew how to cook, um, I learned from my sister. I thought she was a cook uh, because she was doing most of the cooking for me growing up because my mom was a nurse working the night shift. Um, and, you know, we were in between stepfathers. And so, you know, Dina would pretend like she could cook. She, she'd be a little teenage girl, pretend like she could cook for her little brother. And I just thought it was, you know, that's just what people do. They take a piece of bologna and they fry it up. And when, 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 you, when it domes up, you ever fried bologna and it domes up? Then you flip it and it becomes a what? A sombrero. And Dina would ask, you want me to make you some sombreros? And I'm like, yeah, that's good eating. Because um, it would have a flip on a flip. And so we're sitting down, and I'm, I'm sitting there next to my role model in life. And she pulls out, and some of y'all got some in your purse, in your closet, hiding from your spouse. And you, she pulls out this purple bag with a gold cord on the top of it. Anybody know what that is? Y'all all going to hell. She pulls out this crown royal bag, and this girl, church mother, helped me raise my sons when my wife died. Help raise me. This girl pulled out a joint. And a lighter. And she said, let's smoke a joint. <laughs> I remember, I said, we don't do that. We're Christians. That's, you'll go to hell for that. And she said, no, it's not that bad. Bug does it. <laughs> I don't know why it didn't dawn on me. That's no validation. Bug's a hoe. <laughs> Bug was the biggest hoe in our neighborhood. You ever know what happened to her? I wonder if she's still going by bug. I hope not. She said bug does it. And she lit this marijuana cigarette. And she started sucking on it. And I'm thinking, the whole world's going to hell. I'm being led astray. I'm an innocent little boy being victimized by the oppressor. So she passed it to me. And after three years of carrying my Bible to school every day, getting laughed at by, by, by dudes picking on me, fighting people over this, I just, because my sister handed I took it. And I smoked it. And the same thing happened to me that happened to you the first time you smoked a joint. Nothing. It's hilarious to watch kids smoke marijuana for the first time and pretend to be high. 
drink for the first, and pretend to be. So anyway, that started a course because she was now going to a high school, and I was still in junior high school. By the time I got to high school, Dina had become friends with all the in crowd, uh, stoner, dopers, good-looking people, uh, people with money and cars and uh, that were willing to buy you whatever you wanted them to buy you. And back then, Ed White was a school for rich people. And it was the only, there were only two schools in Jacksonville back then that had wall-to-wall carpeting and central heat and air. It was Ed White, because it was a new school, and Sandalwood. And so all the rich people in Jacksonville either went to Ed White or Sandalwood. So all these kids had money, and they just, you know, you get in a car with them, and whatever they were doing, you, you were welcome to get in with it. And that started a spiraling in my life. That, that, that led me to a place of drug use, of alcoholism, of crime, of being in and out of jail. And it was just out of control. It was literally out of control. And some of y'all, uh, you, you, you hear these stories, but you can't imagine how, how bad it was. Uh, because it, it would be, uh, we weren't just partiers. We were face down in the ditch drunks. And we carried whole gallon jugs of whole grain alcohol. I had two gallon jugs of whole grain alcohol in my trunk when I got saved. And I would go out to my car in between classes. Because if you've ever been a real drunk, you know, if you go too long in the day without drinking, you, your body don't feel right. And I would go out there in the Florida heat and drink whole grain alcohol. It's a miracle my stomach held together. I kept Maalox on me all the time because my stomach was always tore up. Because, listen, if you're a drinker, you're not supposed to drink whole grain alcohol. It says on the bottle, mix it with something. But I was just a fall-down drunk. I was selling drugs in high school. I was getting in and out of jail. And that's just how my, my life went uh, for 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. And I didn't, never took an SAT test in my life still to this day. Never took ACT test. Never thought about going to college. I was breaking into homes in high school, stealing gas for my car in high school, Getting put in and out of jail in high school, um, always money in my pocket. And I just determined I don't need to go to no college. Uh, Dana went right off to what, FJC at the time, Florida Junior College. Uh, she was fall down drunk too, but she was just smart. Um, and so I wasn't thinking about college. I wasn't thinking about a job. I was thinking about living for the party, sell, selling drugs. Uh, we, it was so funny back then. We, we were selling uh, black beauties. Uh, me and my boy Mark, we, we became the go-to for the entire West Side for black beauties. They were speed pills. But there were times when they were hard to get. And every drug dealer knows how to supplement uh, fake stuff with real stuff. And the, the lifesaver for us came when they started coming out with all these energy stimulant pills because they were black too and they looked the same. And we'd sell, we'd sell you a handful of speed pills and they'd be mixed with, you know, diet weight loss stimulants. And you think the same thing. Uh, but that, that was just the life I was living. And one day on July 15th, 1981, I'm out of high school. I'm, I'm, I'm just living wide, wild open wide open. My mom had already told me, if you ever go to jail again, I won't come get you. She was tired of it. She had begged me many times, please move out of my house. 
she knew the things that I was doing. It was driving her crazy. She was a single mother, and I was so mean and so hateful to her. I can remember telling her, I'm not going anywhere, and you can't make me. She said, why do you want to live here? You don't love me. You don't love anything. Uh, you're never here. You only come home uh, you know, every fifth day uh, to get more clothes. I said, I ain't leaving because I can live here for free if I want to. And just mean and hateful and lost and unsaved. And I'd been to a party uh, that night, and I was driving home. And it was a hot summer night, July 15, 1981. And I was just, I was high, I was drunk, and I did what every real alcoholic knows how to do. Because when, when it's hot, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and you're driving home, you got to roll the window down and hang your head out the window to try to stay awake. I had my head out the window, shirt off, head out the window, trying to stay awake. I got, managed to get home, thank God. Uh, and my life had become so out of control, my mother had moved me into the garage because she, she didn't want me coming in out of the main house because um, I was just too loud and trafficking. I'd bring people with me and had no respect for her or her house. And so I was living in the garage, and she made it up like a real bedroom. It wasn't like child abuse, but... Um, I, I came in through my garage, but I was high, so I needed to go to the kitchen. So I walk in through the garage, go hitting my bedroom, was on my way to the kitchen. I took my shirt, and I threw it to my bed, but it missed the bed. And that was a shock to me because I still play this game with my kids today at 57, almost 58 years old. I bet I can take this piece of paper and, and hit, that, hit that little tiny bottle cap. Way over on the, I can throw something and hit something from any distance you want to hit it to. I, 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 I could throw a wadded up piece of paper and, and hit you in that left shoe where your shoestring's sticking up. And when I threw it and it missed the bed, I was like, well, I must really be high. And it landed half on the bed and half on the nightstand. Part of it laying on this Bible. And I froze in my tracks. I never even made it to the kitchen. I froze in my tracks, and I looked at that little red Bible, and I thought, huh, I ain't seen that. And I'd seen it, but I wasn't seeing it. I was dusting it. And God drew me at 3.30 in the morning to this book, and I began to open this book and flip through the pages of this book. And with no preacher, no choir, no, no aisle to walk, no hand to shake, nobody to clap for me, I started reading this book. And I knew what it meant to pray and ask God to save you. And I remember praying. I asked God to save me for real. And I remember saying, not like Jimmy. Jimmy was our pastor's son. And um, I first person I ever saw tie off uh, and mainline was Jimmy. And I saw him passed out with a needle in his arm. And he was a pastor's son. And I said, I want real salvation. And God saved me that day. I stayed up all night long crying, singing the songs I'd learned as a little kid in church, reading the Bible, didn't even go to sleep that night. And that afternoon, my drug-dealing friend Mark called me on the phone. He said, hey, Scott, you remember Ted Boone? I said, yeah, from the park, Normandy Park. He said, yeah. Uh, I said, why? He said, I lost a bet to him today, um, and I got to go to church with him Sunday, and I need you to go with me because you know I ain't no church person. And I wasn't no church person at that time either. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. You ain't going to believe what happened to me. He said, well, tell me later. I got to go. So that Sunday, 
Uh, all Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I'm just reading my Bible. I barely left my room for three days. I'm just reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm singing songs. I'm crying. I'm not talking to anybody. There were no cell phones back then. The world wasn't interconnected back then. I'm just alone in my room reading my Bible and rejoicing. I knew something miraculous had happened in my life. I went to church at Hillcrest Baptist Church on Sunday morning and uh, with Mark and Ted Boone. And Mark never went back after that day. But that day I walked the aisle because the pastor said, if you've been saved recently and you haven't made a public profession of faith, you need to walk this aisle. And Jesus said, whosoever believes in him should not be ashamed and make your public profession of faith. And so I walked down there and I told him I got saved in my bedroom this week um, and joined, joined the church. And they said, well, you need to be back tonight for Bible study, Sunday night Bible study. And so I went back that night for Bible study and I met a group of young people um, that reached out to me and told me, well, we got uh, youth Bible study tomorrow night, Monday night Bible study for teens if you want to come. So I went. I'm just first week of salvation. I went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night. They had a youth Bible study. Tuesday, Monday night, they said, hey, we're going to watch the adult men's softball team. Hillcrest Baptist Church had a nationally ranked softball team at that time. They said, we're going to watch the men's softball team play softball tomorrow night. You want to go? Yeah, I got no job. I got no school. I got no, I'm, I'm all into Jesus. I've, I've already read, you know, 40 hours of Bible at this point in my life. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm about now. And so Tuesday night, we went and watched the men play softball. Wednesday night, back to midweek Bible study. They said, uh, visitation is tomorrow. We used to do Thursday night door-to-door visitation. My first week of salvation, I went knocking on doors, telling people how they could get saved and become a Christian. Friday and Saturday night, they had a thing at the church for young people, single people, called the Peacemaker. So Friday night, first week saved, I go Friday night Peacemaker, Saturday night Peacemaker, Sunday morning back to church, Sunday night back to church, Monday night youth Bible study, Tuesday night, went and watched men play softball, Wednesday night, Midweek Bible study, Thursday night, door-to-door visitation, Friday, Saturday night, back to Peacemaker. Sunday morning, back to church, Sunday night, back to church. Monday, youth Bible study. Tuesday, went and watched men play softball. Wednesday, midweek Bible study. Thursday, door-to-door salvation. Friday, Saturday night, back at the Peacemaker. Sunday morning, back to church. Sunday night, back to church. Monday night, youth Bible study. Tuesday, the brakes came off. There was no softball game. And me and this young group of people, because it was the summer of 1981, had been together every night for almost a month talking about God. Nothing but talking about God. And it was everything to me. And we didn't know what we were going to do. So we met at the Normandy Mall when it was a mall back then, and we sat on top of our car, and we read Bible verses to each other, and we sang Christian songs. And that was my introduction into Christ. I immediately stopped drugs. I immediately stopped alcohol. I didn't have to worry about my lost friends because every time they'd call me, I'd start talking about Jesus. They'd hang up. And God saved me in the summer of 1981, and he changed my life forever. And it's so real to me that I've never had a doubt about it. See, Dina was off to college back then. Uh, Well, Lenore Ryan... Gardner, I always say Lenore, it's Gardner, they're next to each other, aren't they? Um, in North Carolina, she was off to college. She came back and moved in with us. She hadn't seen none of this transition in her baby brother. She didn't know what, what was going on in my life. And I'm just a different person. I'm walking around the house happy. I was the most miserable human being in the world. I bothered with everybody. I fought everybody. I was just belligerent to everybody. 
and she sees me doing house chores. She because my stepfather's gone, and we had stopped doing chores for years. And she sees me. Uh, I, I was doing something that I, I don't think I'd ever done before. I was washing. I'd wash my own clothes before because, you know, I was coming and going. But I was washing every towel and every washcloth in the house. I gathered up towels from our bathroom, from mom's bathroom, and I'm sitting there uh, just happy, smiling, and folding towels. And she sat down, and she said, what the heck? Who are you? This is, I don't know. And I started talking to her about what happened to me. And uh, a week or two later, she got saved. And then we, same transition for her. And then she's doing that everyday thing. And just reading our Bible, praying, rejoicing. I'd read something in the Bible that's cool. I'd share it with her. She'd read something in the Bible that's cool. She'd share it with me. And we started talking to my mom. And my mom was mad. Oh, she was so mad. She was so mad. She's like, tell me I need to be a Christian. I've been a Christian. I'm the one that got y'all to church. I took y'all to church y'all's whole life. And I'm thinking, she got a bad memory. We, we started praying for my mom. It, 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 it wasn't too much later. Uh, my mom came to receive Christ. My little brother, who's in heaven now, um, he, he died in a motorcycle accident on Christmas of 2001. Um, he, he came to know the Lord, and it happened just the way the Bible said it would happen. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Everybody in our house became Christians. And we knew that God had changed all of us. I want So you might not remember the exact date. It might not have been a stay up all night long. You might not have changed from the scum of the earth to somebody going to church. The change was so radical in my life before my mom got saved. She called the pastor of the Hillcrest Baptist Church and cussed him out and said, Stop having church so much. I don't know how y'all brainwashing my children, but, but you're doing something to them. And uh, the pastor said, tell her you're not brainwashed, you're blood washed. I like that. <laughs> she got saved. We changed. You might not remember the exact date, but if you're truly saved, you remember getting saved. You might not remember if it was a Monday or a Tuesday. You might not remember if it was a Sunday service or a Wednesday service. But you remember if you're really saved. Listen, if you don't, you need to get you a real salvation that you can remember. Because here's the reality. If I walk, if I grab my water bottle right now and I walk down and I splashed it in, in your face, you you you'd remember that. You you might not uh, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, when you're old, you might not remember what day it was, what month it was, but you'd remember that something drastic happened in your life. If you don't remember when you got saved, I want you to hear me well. If you don't remember when you got saved, you are unsaved. If you can't tell me when you crossed over from death to life, you haven't crossed over. If you know your birthday but don't know your spiritual birthday, you are... Now, I'm not saying you have to know the date. I'm not saying you have to know the hour. Maybe it's just a year, a season in your life. Maybe it's sometime when you were living here or living there. But if you had a transition, if you went from being blind to being able to see, you're going to remember that. And if you don't, come on, Judy, if you don't remember that, I want to tell you something. It probably hasn't happened to you. Because if I walk down right now and I slap you in your face, you'll remember that forever. Because it'll be personal and it'll be dramatic. 
And salvation is personal. And it's dramatic. And if it hasn't happened to you, you need to let it happen to you today. Some of you have tried to get saved many times, and you know in your heart it hasn't happened for you. You've walked aisles and prayed prayers, and you know you haven't become saved. You got better for a little while, but then you drifted right back to who you are. But you got to go from being who you are to who he is. You got to go from being by yourself to having God live on the inside of you. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be with you like I have been with you. But he'll not just be with you, he'll be inside you. And if you have the Spirit of the living God living inside you, you don't have room for doubting whether or not you're truly saved. So I'm going to close by reading this verse of Scripture. The Bible says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. Everybody in this room believes that Jesus was a person. He's the most documented person in the history of the world. But everybody in this room doesn't believe that he died, was buried, and rose from the dead on the third day after having paid payment for our sins. That's the difference between being lost and being saved. If you believe that information about God, information won't make you saved. The, many have said some people will miss heaven by 18 inches. The difference between what they know in their head and what they possess in their heart. You may know more Bible than anybody in this room. But do you have God living on the inside of you? Do you have the peace of God that assures you that he has saved you? If you don't, I got good news for you. The Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You may have done that before. You, you, you may have walked aisles, prayed prayers. I did that several times. Been baptized several times. Never worked for me until that night because I wanted it with all that's in me. Some of you need to want God like that. God is calling some of you right now to get rid of what you've had and get something different. What you've had, some of y'all just keep rededicating your life, but you've never been truly saved. So you're just rededicating unsavedness. And you need to find true salvation. Well, what will the people think of me? They, I, I, I serve here. I, I wish every deacon in this church would be truly saved. I wish every preacher in America would be truly saved. I wish everybody singing in choirs across the world would be truly saved. What real Christians would think about you is where we'd be glad for you. And more important than that, God would be glad for you. Because God sent his son Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life because we couldn't and to pay the penalty for sin the Bible says the payment for sin is death what did Jesus do on the cross he died he died and he made payment for our sin and you can choose to believe in that story and let Jesus pay for your sin or you can stand before a holy God on judgment day one day and pay for your own sin for eternity in hell the choice is up to you salvation is free for us but it cost Jesus his life and if you'd be willing to really ask him with your whole heart to save you, the Bible says if you call on him wholeheartedly, God will save you. Some of you need to do that for real and quit playing. There's a great difference, and you will be so happy. There's a great difference in coming to church as a lost person and coming to church as a saved person. There's a great difference in living life lost and living life saved. And some of you have experienced church, but you haven't experienced real salvation. And I hope that you will do that today. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for saving me 40 years ago. I thank you for keeping me when I was unkeepable. God, I thank you for never failing me through all the times I failed you.
And Lord, I pray for each person in this room today that you would let true salvation come their way. That you would let them know even now, God, quicken their heart. Draw them. You said that no one can come unless you draw them. Let them feel a drawing to be truly saved today. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around but me, I, I, I just want to give you an opportunity in the stillness and the quietness of this moment. If you're here and you would say, I want to get saved today, I want you to know all you have to do is call on the Lord in sincerity. I want to help you do that today. I'm going to pray a prayer. This prayer is not magic. This prayer won't save you, but if you mean it with your whole heart, God will hear it and he will save you. If you're here and you want to be saved today, I want you to pray silently. The Bible says that God can hear the thoughts in your head. I want you to pray silently after me as I pray out loud. I'm not talking about rededicating. I'm not talking about getting saved again. I'm talking about getting saved for real, finally and forever. If you want that type of real biblical Holy Ghost salvation, you pray silently after me. Just say something like this. Dear God, I believe in you. And I believe that you sent Jesus to pay for my sins. I believe that he died and he was raised from the dead. And he lives. And I want him to live inside of me. Please forgive me of my sins. Save me. And let me be a real Christian. Let me be truly born again. Come inside my life and change me. Give me purpose for this life. Create in me newness real salvation. Thank you for listening to the AOCF Sound Doctrine Podcast and visit us on the web at aocfnow.org. Your financial support for this ministry allows us to share the gospel around the world. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you would like to give a donation, please go to aocfnow.org. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church, loving God, loving people.